It's Palm Sunday, a Sunday when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry, the king entering Jerusalem on the praises of the people who welcome him. This is unquestionably a unique and celebratory time, but it ends abruptly as there is a looming clash of powers on the immediate horizon. The gospel writers display a quick movement from the blessed welcome of Jesus to the bewildering betrayal and suffering of Jesus. A movement of colorful rejoicing which ends in bleak darkness. The darkness of evil comes from every angle, not catching Jesus by surprise. He has been prophetically telling this moment throughout his ministry with the disciples, but clearly confusing his disciples. It is a dark week, heavy with intensity, that disorients everyone caught in the moment. There is a place off the northeast coast of England, very close to Scotland, called Lindisfarne. And it's affectionately known as Holy Island because it is one of the earliest places where Christianity settled in the British Isles. It still has the ruins of a monastery, a castle, and a church. Uh, Gary, our very own, has been there recently, and I think Ben and Rebecca have also been there. But there's another unique aspect to this Holy Island. When the tides are out, it's not far off from the coast of England, and when the tides are out, there's a road that appears that one can take to either walk or drive to the island. And a part of this, though, is that once you've taken this road, you obviously have to return. And if you are unaware and lack attentiveness to the tidal changes, it can easily catch you by surprise as it returns. I've been told that it's awfully deceiving due to the way the tides return from both sides of the island. Water returns into the bay from two different directions with such pace that it often catches those on the road unprepared and bewildered, and ultimately with some water damage to their car. You can Google it. There's pictures. One, and I bring up this this island and the, the tidal effects here because in a similar way, like this tidal return at Lindisfarne, there are two distinct waves of tides coming in and two different pressures that are coming in quickly upon Jesus and his disciples as they travel on this path in Jerusalem. On the one hand, there is the tide of Israel's religious leaders in Jesus' day. And this is unquestionably the leading tide, the leading force, using their power to seize Jesus and rally the masses around their false narrative and fearful animosity towards Jesus. The other tide is the governing political power of Rome that collude for their own benefit and compromise under social pressure of the moment. These two tides are rushing in from both directions, promising a drowning and disorienting effect for any caught on the road. So the question is, how will Jesus respond in this moment? How will his disciples respond 
as they walk this path with him. The two scenes I want to quickly jump in to to answer this question are the first scene is this Jesus praying on the Mount of Olives. In this moment and in this scene, Jesus is obviously fully aware of the evil about to surround him and engulf him. So, what does he do? He looks to the Father, he keeps watch through prayer. He is attuned to the moment, attentive, and it leads him to prayer. And he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup of suffering that will drown him under the tides of fierce animosity, self-seeking greed, lustful passion for power, and the crumbling of loyalties. And in spite of all that's in this cup of suffering, he prays, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is a prayer of profound, loving obedience to the Father. If there was ever a time to pull out, it would be now and in this moment but he faithfully commits himself to the Father, fully aware of the darkness that surrounds him, the forces of evil that go beyond the physical world. He kneels in prayer to the Father, perhaps having in mind Psalm 22, which he will quote from while on the cross, and which we will read on Good Friday. Running through his thoughts, which a portion of that psalm says this, yet you, God, are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. In essence, Jesus saying, be enthroned on my praise. Be enthroned upon my obedience and rescue me. Do not put me to shame. Not my will, but yours be done. He looked to the Father, knelt before him, and through it was strengthened. Meanwhile, the disciples, the text says, quoting, sleeping for sorrow. They closed down their faculty of sight. It had been a long and arduous day, which I'm sure we can all sympathize with and we ourselves feel. They had hopes of glory as they entered into Jerusalem, but are now told to pray that they may not enter into temptation, as Jesus tells them in the garden, which corresponds to much of what Jesus had been teaching them and his efforts to reorient the perspective of what kind of glory they would be met with in Jerusalem. But bewildered by the rising tide of darkness, they are not watchful, but they are sleepy. Stripped of attentiveness, they lack the discipline to look to the Father, to watch with Jesus. They fall asleep. 
Scene two. The unjust trial and Peter's denial. The religious leaders come into the garden through Judas's betrayal, arrest and seize Jesus, and Peter follows along and joins the crowd. And as the spokesperson of the disciples, as he's been throughout Jesus's ministry, he is in the crowd and has been rallied, or the crowd which has been rallied against Jesus, which forms the beginning of this unjust persecution and trial. Jesus, seeing this moment to come, told Peter just a day earlier, just hours earlier, in a conversation with Peter, in which he says, quoting, Satan demanded to have you, that you might be sifted like wheat. That Peter's faith through Satan's sifting would fall away and be like chaff in the wind, blown completely away, leaving Peter behind. In a moment of blind confidence, Peter says in this moment, Lord, I am ready to go with you into prison or unto death. But Peter, Peter, I'm sorry, Jesus responds with a firm statement to Peter. Jesus says, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow until you deny three times that you have known me. And in light of all this, in light of Satan's demand to have Peter, Peter's blind confidence, and Jesus' knowledge of Peter's coming betrayal. Jesus, in light of all this, says something else to Peter. These profound words to Peter. Jesus says, quoting, but I have prayed for you. When you return, strengthen the brothers and sisters. Strengthen the church. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So back in the trial scene, Peter's blind confidence suffers a crushing blow with the very first accusation he receives from a servant girl. Not a soldier, nor a scribe, but a servant girl, who the text says looked closely at him, stared at him. After his sleep in the garden, now he has a servant girl staring at him and accuses him brings it up among the crowd that he is a disciple of Jesus. And in this moment, as we know, Peter quickly disassociates himself from Jesus. And two more accusations come in rapid fire, solidifying his dissolved loyalty to Jesus, leaving Jesus in this moment completely abandoned and completely isolated. And it's as if in this moment of clearly seeing his utter betrayal of Jesus, he sees his utter guilt and brokenness. Jesus saw this coming. Peter did not. And in this moment, as if as he himself saw himself for the first time in a mirror. He saw his guilt. He saw his despair. He saw his hands soaked in blood. 
He was utterly guilty of betraying Jesus, completely disassociating himself with him. And in this moment of clearly seeing himself, as if it was his first time clearly seeing himself in this moment, it's as if the text writes in this way in which he's lifting his eyes from seeing himself so clearly. And above the crowd, he lifts his eyes. And off in the distance, who does he see looking right at him? It's Jesus. Luke says, in this moment, Jesus had turned and was looking right at Peter in this moment. It's as if in this moment of Peter seeing himself so clearly in his brokenness, he lifts his eyes and Jesus has already turned and cast his gaze upon him. The true one. The right one. And I would like to put forward that I don't believe this gaze is a gaze from Jesus of condemnation. This gaze of Jesus, the text says, brought to remembrance what Jesus had already told Peter, which was, one, he would betray him. But if we remember, it also, Jesus also said to Peter, but I have prayed for you. When you return, strengthen the church. So I would put forward that this gaze of Jesus in the midst of Peter's utter betrayal of him in his darkest moment of life Jesus turns looks upon Peter with a look of compassion and great power I have prayed for you when you return strengthen the church Jesus, while utterly abandoned and isolated, is so clearly the innocent one. The narrative, the full narrative expresses this. Three times over from Pilate, although he compromises underneath the pressure, and at the scene of his death, the centurion is the only one, only human being in this scene to recognize his innocence. Jesus, utterly abandoned and isolated, being the innocent one, he is the last true man standing, while utterly abandoned and isolated, giving true witness to himself, to the Father, and to true humanity. As Philippians chapter 2 speaks towards, he is the true servant. He is the faithful one, obedient to the point of death even death on a cross, to the glory of the Father, to the enthronement of the Father. The question is for us and his followers, will we be a people who turn and look to him? In the midst of our guilt, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our utter darkness, and despair. Will we turn to look to him, to find him, 
already looking upon us. The attentive one. The true one. Looking at us with forgiveness. Looking at us with the power of resurrection to come. As the criminal on the cross does, he turns, he looks to Jesus. Remember me, he says. And Jesus responds to him saying, today you will be with me. So will we be the people that turn to him this Passion Week, this Holy Week, and find him casting his gaze upon us with profound forgiveness, profound mercy, and profound power to meet us where we're at and to raise us to new life. It is a dark week, but he has led the way, and he is looking upon us and praying for us. Let's pray.